Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice. Today, we're going to take a look at a major player in the healthcare system that few people really understand, despite the impact they have on the cost of care. I'm speaking of pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, companies that function as intermediaries between insurance providers and drug manufacturers. Some PBM business practices have raised concerns in the past among watchdogs and lawmakers at the state and federal level, and they remain a source of scrutiny. Well, our guest today, Karthik Ganesh, is going to help us understand more about PBMs and share how the company he leads, Empiric Health, is taking a different approach to this function that's based on the value-based model of healthcare. Mr. Ganesh has deep experience in PBMs, the healthcare insurance industry, and health data management, with stops in his career at Aetna, Express Scripts, and Deloitte. And he's also the author of The Happiness Model, A Roadmap to Inner Peace. And thanks so much for being on the show today. It's nice to have you. Thank you, Michael. Glad to be here. So we always like to start with learning more about our guests and what first got them interested in their field. In your case, uh, that would be insurance and pharmaceuticals. How'd you get there? Actually, not pharmaceuticals. I have spent the least amount of time in the pharmacy benefit space. I've been in healthcare for 23 plus years started with Ernst & Young back in the late 90s. And um, that's when ENY was the largest healthcare consulting practice. I got into it, realized it it felt comfortable, realized it was also an industry that in a lot of ways, I don't know if Michael, if you, you've heard Mark Twain, the Mark Twain phrase of uh, when the world comes to an end, he wanted to live in Kentucky, <laughs> respect to Kentucky, but um, he felt Kentucky was always 10 years behind the rest of the world. So um, he wanted to live in Kentucky when the world came to an end. And when I joined healthcare back in the late 90s, it was evident that there was so much that just was one, not working, two, was ripe for improvement, that it felt like an exciting place to be and I never left. So you really felt like you could dig in and make some kind of yep. an impact. Was there a particular area first that where you felt that that was possible? It's really been across, uh, you know, I've, I've always found it interesting that, you know, whether you look at leaders or you look at companies, in a lot of ways, what you take away from it are lessons learned more so than best practices. So versus telling you the stuff that I places where I felt I could be impactful, the things that stood out for me were the things that were less impactful, which kind of opened up the aperture significantly in terms of places I could be impactful. It is an industry that continues to be, I mean, health insurance, especially broadly, continues to be an industry that is one misunderstood, two has done very little to change the misunderstanding. The misunderstood component of it is with 80% of healthcare premiums in this country being picked up by employers. People say, well, you know what? My insurance didn't pay for that. Not really. Your employer didn't pay for that. Your health insurer was merely a facilitator of your employer's wishes in 80% of the instances. Mm -hmm. What's interesting for me is in that spectrum, health insurers for all the money spent on advertising on a bunch of on multitude of different fronts, they don't want to be, able, they don't ever want to step back and say, guys, time out. It's not us. We're just doing what we're being asked to do. That's first thing. The second part to it is the second thing that continues to intrigue me, intrigued me when I joined. And it's uh, it's just fascinating to see how, you know, as a country, we've embraced 
Einstein's definition of insanity as it comes to healthcare, <laughs> right? We lost HMOs 30 years ago. Whether we liked HMOs, didn't like HMOs, doesn't matter. The one thing that HMOs brought to the table was this notion of you, you needed you needed a PCP, right? You, but with a PCP, you had a singular quarterback of a patient's care. We've lost that, right? Tomorrow I could go to hospital A and get my hips done, hospital B, get my knees done, and hospital C, because let's say I had COVID. And A would not talk to B, would not talk to C, because they're three completely unique transactions in my health continuum. And the fact that as a, as a country, we haven't gravitated more towards trying to figure out how to look at whole person health. And I feel like it's almost cultural for us that we are, you know, whether it's retail, whether it's healthcare, whether it's in, in some cases interpersonal, being more transactional feels like a security blanket, even though in the long haul, it gives us more unhappiness, more so than happiness. But healthcare has become a transactional relationship with your provider. So when I look at these, right, I look at the first component I talked about, the transactional aspects of it, all of these for me have really been, you know, have been motivators for me to stay focused on, you know, the little nooks of healthcare where impact can be made. And that's what we've done with Empirics. We've taken, you know, when you introduce pharmacy benefit managers, Michael, you said they act as intermediaries between manufacturers and employers, right? And it's interesting. We never say that about health insurers. We never say they're an intermediary between your doctor and the patient because we feel like they're doing something in healthcare. Pharmacy benefit managers have done their level best to not behave like healthcare companies. Yet pharmacy benefits are 30% of an employer's healthcare spend and growing at a furious pace. What we have done fundamentally differently is we have said there are a ton of constructs that are core to pharmacy benefits that are very retail-like, rebates, discounts, arbitrage. While those have a place in any setting where you are buying and selling anything, they can't be at the core of it. At the core of it, it has to be a healthcare and a care model about patients done right. And then you you marry that with the fact that healthcare economists tell us that 25% of all healthcare spend in this country is waste. So on on $4 trillion of healthcare spend, we have a trillion dollars of waste. We've married a very advanced and highly focused care model and clinical discipline with an obsessiveness around waste management as it pertains to costs with another level of obsessiveness around patient and employer slash union satisfaction. So you take all of all three of those together. And I use the term obsessive because, you know, even as, especially as it, because at the end of the day, we're a service organization. I love it when people say, well, it's white glove service. Well, did the white glove get muddied along the way? You know, nothing's more personal to us than health and wealth. And you don't have wealth without health. So really the most personal thing to us is health. So if nothing's more personal than health as a service organization in that space, we can't afford to be good enough. We can't afford to even care enough. We have to be unrelentingly obsessive. So we've brought all of that to the table and we've created a model that is just completely different from the market. Yeah, so help us maybe uh, break that down in practical terms. So take a 
PBM operating in more of a traditional model. Yeah. Explain how they interact with all the stakeholders and then what it is that Empirics Health is doing. Yeah. So in its simplest form, right, I'll, I'll take you back to the simple concept of volume versus value. For most of what we do in healthcare services and especially pharmacy benefits in our country is volume based. The more drugs that leave the shop, the more monies the PBM makes. The more drugs that get dispensed, I think it was two years ago, Michael, I think it was one of the, it was one of the largest health insurers in the country. They're also one of the largest PBMs. They had their, they had their um, Q2 earnings call and the CFO said, uh, we were squarely in the middle of COVID. And he said, because utilization is going to spike the second half of the year, we're going to have a banner year. And everyone clapped. And I said, I listened to the call and I thought to myself, we just had one of the largest health healthcare companies in the country say they were going to push more drugs into the system. And people thought that was a good idea. But the incentive model for your traditional PBM has been volume equates to more revenue, equates to more pocketbook impact to the insurer or the PBM with a piece of it being shared with the employer or the union. On the other hand, when you think about, when you look at our model, our model is value in its purest form. And I say value not as defined by empirics, value as defined by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. The Institute for Healthcare Improvement has laid out, they used to call it the triple aim, it morphed into the quintuple aim, but the triple aim in its purest, in its most basic form was improve per capita costs by deploying pay for performance models. 98% of empirics health's contracts are pay for performance. If if our client wins, we win. If our client loses, we lose. Okay, that's one. The second aim from an IHI standpoint is improving the health of populations. Comes back to our conversation around episodic transactional interactions versus populations and whole person health. We deploy a Johns Hopkins driven model that is population health in its purest management in its purest form. Every one of our clients has a population risk profile that is created for them that is both clinical and financial. Every one of our patients within those clients has a risk score that is both clinical and financial. And the clinical and the financial are not just here and now, it also projects what it could be based on their comorbidities, et cetera, that are going on with them. So per, improving per capita costs, improving the health of populations, improving patient satisfaction, employer satisfaction, staff satisfaction, and health equity. So health equity became the fifth aim of the triple aim, if you will. And uh, we've put all of that together and built a model where we win only when our clients win. We lose when our clients lose. We are obsessive about service. We are equally focused on health outcomes as we are financial outcomes. And so as a result, we've created a mousetrap that is extremely good for the plot for the employer's pocketbook the plan sponsor's pocketbook it is fantastic for the health of their employees and their families or their members of their union members and we have a very significant union population and if we think of the hr teams or the fund administrators as being caregivers because they really are in the business of providing benefits to those employees we're taking care of them with a 24 by 7 service model as well so taking care of the caregiver. So it's we've looked at it from a clinical, financial, and a service aspect and delivered a trifecta that is completely divorced from driving more volume. So we're basically 
talking about value-based care here, which was something created as part of Obamacare, but it has seemed to struggle to get a deep foothold uh, in the healthcare system in this country. And I'm wondering if you agree with that, why you think it's had trouble gaining traction, and can PBMs help it along? PBMs don't help it along. A value-based benefit player like us does help it along. There's two reasons why it hasn't gained traction. The first reason is value-based care in this country has continued to be about payers holding providers accountable. But the question is, who's holding the payer accountable? The payer keeps getting richer. No one's holding the payer accountable. That's one. The second is, you know, Michael, employers pick up 80% of the healthcare premiums in this country. No one has taken the time to explain to them why value is a more important lever than cost and access. I was at SIA last week, which is the Self-Insurance Institute. They had their annual conference, and you had a bunch of risk administrators, employers, plan sponsors in the room. And the questions were about PBMs. How do you, you know, PBMs, is it working? Is it not working? What do we like? What don't we like? And I said, guys, we could keep, we could talk about this for the next 10 years, and we could come back 15 years from now, 10 years from now, and have the same conversations. If you as employers don't demand differently, we're going to be stuck with the same things. If you as employers have heard about value-based care, trust me, no one is going to take the time to explain it to you. Demand more. And if you didn't ask demand more earlier, coming out of COVID or at least trying to come out of COVID right now, you've got to ask for more. So there is a lack of education in the market, which has really caused this. And I think payers haven't done themselves or value-based care any service by making it an insider healthcare story versus a broader healthcare conversation. Mm -hmm. So give me an example of of what kind of difference you think uh, Empirics Health is making. You talk about when clients win, you win. What does that look like, for, uh, particularly with the patient in mind? A really simple um, construct is we were, we were in Forbes last week because of a study that we published, and we saw, like everybody else, mental health costs have been going up, right? Mental health utilization has been going up, more importantly. We saw a 9.4% increase in mental health utilization across our book. But more importantly, what we saw as a part of that was a 12% increase in antidepressants. So most folks would say, well, it increased, which means cost went up as well for those employers. No, for our for our clients, their cost per claim for mental health went for antidepressants went down by 2%. For ADHD, the utilization went up by 20%. The cost per claim for our employers went down by 9%. Here's the more, even more exciting part. With all of the depression, the mental health tsunami that we've been under, we've seen opioids just kick off into a higher gear the last couple of years. We had a 10% reduction in opioid claims. We had an 8% reduction in case in patients who were on opioids, and on antidepressants. And we had a 14% increase in patients who were diagnosed with opioid use disorder and now sought treatment. A model where you are not trying to peddle more drugs and you are trying to optimize utilization. You're trying to make sure that people get the right drug the first time. You're working in concert with the physician who is always incentivized to do the right thing. You are focused on building care models around the highly compromised or highly complex patients who need more care. 
If you're an antidepressant today and you've called Empirix more than once, we assign a dedicated clinician to you who is going to be your personal care concierge from that point onwards. Wrap yourselves, you know, as a country, we, we hear this all the time, right? We've got a small percentage of people who have an overweighted need for care. But yet, we generalize that overweighted need across the board to everybody. And as a result, we have an overly bloated healthcare system from a cost standpoint. That's where all the waste comes in. What if you just, and as a result, what we also do is the people who really need that care, they're not getting what they need. Versus that, what we've done as empirics is we've we've said 2.6% of our patients are driving about 48% of our services. We've created care models to wrap ourselves around the 2.6%. We're improving their quality of life. We're improving their health outcomes. We're helping them stay focused on their medications and take their medications. We're helping them navigate the healthcare continuum. And as a result, we're reducing their isolation and helping them move towards um, treatment alternatives that might get them away from opioids. So this really is a departure right from the PBM model. How did you think that this was gonna work? I mean, that you were gonna be able to move the system uh, in a way that this could work. Brilliant founder who fundamentally came to the table, built the company originally with the thought process that there had to be a better way and that there was too much waste in the system. We built a company around a thought process that if there's 25% of the healthcare systems, healthcare spend is waste, there's at least 25% of opportunity out there. That's a great starting point. That's one second. That opportunity isn't going to come by reducing access because that's healthcare done wrong. Let's Let's chip away at that opportunity by really doubling down on care. Better care, more care can result in reduced cost. Because if I've got a patient in front of me who's got a mental health situation, mental health is health. If I double down as a service provider, take care of that person and get that person to a better place mentally, it's going to get that person to a better place, place physically. As a result, it's going to get that person to a place where they're utilizing less meds. Mm -hmm. More care equates to less spend. Right. Yet, as, as an industry, the thought has been, let me chip away and create barriers to access, and maybe people won't show up mm. because it's difficult to get access, and as a result, costs will go down. All of that chipping away came back to bite us with COVID. 40% of American counties, according to a recent study, are considered pharmacy deserts where there isn't a pharmacy within a five mile radius. Access to care. We're the richest country on the planet. Healthcare access has to be core to who we are. It's not, which is why our, our mortality rates and our healthcare rates are consistent with what you would see in parts of the world where healthcare is a luxury. Right. Yeah, we're not getting the value, uh, for, the value for what we're spending. And yeah, you can see something, uh, I'm, I'm going to forget the exact number, but uh, people will reference the problem with folks filling a prescription, not taking it. So if you just think about that, if somebody was on top of that, made sure they were taking the prescription, well, then maybe they got a chance, you know, if the treatment protocol is correct, that they're going to feel better. Uh, but if they just sort of fall through the cracks, then you're not getting anywhere, but they're buying a drug. That's exactly right. And if you now make that drug more affordable, not because it is at a better price point, but because you're now put, you've put them on a med that's going to help them physically, but also put them on a med 
that is clinically appropriate yet lower cost, they're not only going to fill it, but they're going to be incentivized to take it because they can afford it. Well, this is super informative and educational, but we're not done asking you for things that we need to learn about. Uh, we love to ask our guests to provide us with some direction, actually, and tell us about something that they wish more people knew about or fill in a gap or bust a myth. What's something that you're, you're particularly interested in that you would say, Osmosis, you should make a video about that? Minimalism. And I would say that that is when people think minimalism, they automatically gravitate towards, you know, the number of people who've who've come to me after my that CNBC article and said, well, 87 things, how do you manage with 87 things, Karthik? When I think about minimalism, it's not about your material possessions. I think about minimalism in terms of your mindset, in terms of decluttering your mind, in terms of giving yourself the breathing room, the headroom to just focus on the things that need to be focused on. Really important for any students listening to this. And let me just back up a little bit. You really actually only possess 87 things, correct? I do. Yeah. Yes. And talk about how in your case, and we've probably seen this now with other people around you, how does that decluttering impact their mind and play out into their professional life? You know, I've I've, I've been a firm believer in life. Um, I've, I've, I've had my... Uh, some really significant personal challenges and life has continued to teach me that this passion is more important in a lot of ways than passion. The fewer things you own, the less attached you are to them. As a result, you have fewer, you have fewer anchors as you need to pivot in your decision-making. And it's just incredibly freeing because you're not being bound or handcuffed by material things. You're not being handcuffed by ideas in your mind who that have passed their expiration date. You've got the headroom, you've got the wallet room, and you've got the physical and the mental space to be able to do the things that are important to you. There's too much to experience in our lifetimes. There is, we get caught up so much of what we get caught up with in life, um, so much sadness uh, in our life is because we we build these hopes up based on things we want. We build up hopes and then the hopes result in expectations. And then when those expectations aren't met, we call that a bad outcome because we immediately rush to, to qualify the outcome and then we're disappointed and sad. What if we... What if we just took life as it is? What if every single thing wasn't a good or bad outcome? It just was. What if all we controlled was giving the journey our absolute best with absolutely no what ifs, knowing the destination could be whatever it needed to be? And that really is what my book is about as well. My book is about embracing the journey and letting the outcome be a byproduct. I'm wondering if it's one of those things where you don't realize how handcuffed you are until you start the decluttering process. You're exactly right. Yeah. You're exactly right. As you start decluttering, you realize there's one fewer thing you need to worry about. The more you do that, you realize, hey, I, I don't need to be thinking about those things anymore. And the we are a slave to our minds. When we can flip that equation and control our mind and not 
let our mind tell us, well, this thing is good, that thing's bad. But that when when you've built the muscle memory to say that thing doesn't bother me one way or the other because it doesn't exist anymore, you're completely in control. At that point, success or failure are immaterial because it's just another event that took place. You just moved on from it. Hmm. Fascinating, really, really fascinating, and so much food for thought for everybody listening today. And so pleased that you've spent some time with us. Thank you. Appreciate the time today. Thank you very much, Karthik Ganesh, for being our guest today. I'm Michael Carice, and thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>